Thanks for listening to High Green, the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's podcast. Today, Neil and I are talking to two members of Project 1228, a grassroots effort to restore a surviving Boston and Maine diesel for freight service on the Milford Bennington Railroad of New Hampshire. High Green is supported by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any opinions expressed are solely those of the owner. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it's a B&M story and it's a good one. And the next thing you know, we hear 119 getting out of town with his steam engine working like the hell. He's going up by way of Rutland. Welcome to High Green. I'm Rick Cafori. Today's feature segment, we're talking about Boston and Maine EMD SW9-1228, one of the very few remaining Boston and Maine SW9s, and for almost 30 years, it's been owned and stored by the Milford Bennington Railroad. Well, recently, Reuven Grayen, an employee of the Milford Bennington, has announced an effort to restore the locomotive for freight service on the Milford Bennington, and with a grassroots volunteer-type effort, they're going to do just that. We're going to learn how you can get involved, so stick around. It's starting to get cold outside, and why not weather the classic New England winter with some apparel from the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society? In our online store, we have full winter jackets, fleece sweatshirts and fleece vests, we've got hooded sweatshirts, and we've got long sleeve t-shirts as well. One of my favorite pieces of clothing that we offer are the fleece vests. They look great on top of a sweater. And the fleece sweatshirts are perfect liners for your favorite ski or winter jacket. Of course, all of our items are made here in the United States. They're great quality. They maintain their color and their graphics. And every single penny goes right back into supporting the Boston and Maine Historical Society. Head on over to the online store and check it out today. So we're here today with two members of a recent project that has come out into the limelight here. Uh, in the past few years, there's been quite a few uh, restoration projects revolving around uh, the Boston and Maine community. Uh, specifically up at Conway Scenic, they've had the uh, 4268, the F unit, which has been worked on. Uh, there's the 1113, which is the uh, Boston and Maine SW1 down at Berkshire Scenic. And a few other projects that have come out, but. The uh, most recent project really to come out and be announced is um, the functional restoration of Boston and Maine uh, EMD SW9 number 1228, which has been a large subject of curiosity for lots of people in the hobby and in the Boston and Maine community. Uh, and that project is a little bit different than some of the others that are out there. So uh, today we've got two members of the project here to talk about it. We've got Reuven Grayen, who works for the Milford Bennington Railroad. Uh, he's an engineer for them. And we've also got uh, Zach Newton, who's a volunteer for the project and uh, also a member of the Boston Maine Railroad Society. So we're going to talk to them a little bit about the project, get a little bit more information about it, and uh, hopefully learn something about how you can get involved if you'd like to. So we're going to start with you, Reuven. Uh, if you can walk us through a little bit about uh, your background, how you got involved with railroading and the Boston and Maine in general, and uh, also how you got involved with the Milford Bennington and the 1228 project. Well, uh, railroading started for me um, 
outside of volunteering for Clark's trading posts back in the 20, 2010 area. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I officially got involved with the railroading industry was in April 2013 when I got hired on to the Conway Scenic Railroad for just general labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and at most small railroad operations like that, it's generally more than just one job that a person is going to do. Right. Uh, I had the opportunity of working in the mechanical shops during the winter to start learning under some of the older guys there about how much of this equipment works and how it's repaired and what things tend to go wrong. Um, and that kind of gave me the basic grounding for the mechanical side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in 2016, toward the end of the Conway Scenic season, I got hired on the New Hampshire North Coast for about 10 months, mm-hmm. uh, where I worked as a conductor. Late 2017, I left there for a period of time and then got rehired on at the Conway Scenic Railroad. Uh, continued working as in mechanical and electrical stuff up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right at the beginning of the 2018 season, while I was working at Conway Scenic, Milford Bennington Railroad all of a sudden lacked an engineer. Their engineer at the time had gotten himself another job and they were more or less looking around to see who in the area could pull it off because you know they needed to start running trains right then and there. Right. And it was thanks to my friend, Corey Fothergill with his connections that uh, allowed me to get the position mm-hmm. or at least get in contact with Peter Leishman. And uh, within about a week or so, I was able to get an interview with Peter Leishman. He hired me on. For me, I really enjoyed it because it was close to home. So it was actually a, a train that I saw at a very young age. Yeah. Uh, so I was very familiar with the area. Right. Coming into the season of 2019, I had to make the decision because I was working for Conway Scenic and Milford Bennington at the same time. And I eventually decided to stick with Milford Bennington and leave Conway Scenic since it was closer to home. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the basic backgrounding of my railroading experience. Um, and as far as the 1228 projects, as much as I was curious about it as a kid, I never really thought much about, you know, seeing it run or anything like that. But when I was hired on at Milford Bennington, I asked my boss about it at the time, but his plans for the future of it was, and the consensus at that point was it was too much work to fix and he was going to scrap it. Mm-hmm. So at the time I accepted that as a truth. Asked for permission to go on board and at least find anything that was useful and start taking it off. And so I immediately went out, opened up the electrical account, started pulling things like relays and uh, what resistors were still good, power contactors and leads. And then during my first season there at Milford Bennington, my friend Corey Fabio came to visit and he decided to go take a look over at the locomotives uh, for the heck of it since he was in the area. And he gave me a phone call later that night asking what the future was and why it was parked. And I told him it was going to be scrapped. And he suggested the possibility that there are some main elements on it that are actually in good enough shape that it'd be worth seeking a possibility of rehabilitating the locomotive for operational use. Mm -hmm. So he and I went and took a a good close look at it and realized that the the frame is actually in really good shape. The wheel's got lots of meat on it. 90% of the stuff to make it go is still there. And as much as it looked like heck on the outside, uh, the shell is actually in pretty good condition. Hmm. Uh, and then that's when I went and talked to my boss about that being a possibility of us, instead of scrapping it, to give me a chance to see if we could get it going again. Mm-hmm. And since my boss is in no real rush to scrap it, he's like, sure, all right, I'll, I'll let you take a whack at it, see what you can, you can handle. That was sort of how the project kind of got started. But 
uh, initially, there was no real interest in it except for just between me, Corey Fabergale, and a few of my friends until we started moving the thing uh, towards the end of 2019. And then that's when a lot of other individuals started realizing that something was going on since it left Greenfield. Yeah. And that's when I began um, hearing from people like Zach Newton, Neil Rizzo, and others mm-hmm. uh, who wanted to get involved. And that's probably how this started to take flight, I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the engine has been kind of a, like a cult hit, <laughs> if you'll use that, the metaphor, it's been out there and people have known about it, but only a small amount of people, um, yes. you know, and it's, I remember seeing it when I was very young on the uh, Wilton Scenic uh, going out towards, um, you know, the state park there and uh, wondering about it and never really looking into it until I was in college at Keene State and then going down and taking a look at it. Um, and so it's certainly something that's been a curiosity for a lot of people and something that, um, you know, as more people find out about it, more people realize, um, you know, how interesting that engine is specifically. Now, uh, there may be some people out there who aren't familiar with the Milford Bennington. So if you could just kind of talk a little bit about the railroad and what it does um, down there in the south southwestern part of New Hampshire. Sure. Uh, we're a pretty simplistic operation and we're just a glorified conveyor belt in reality. <laughs> uh, all we really do is... Um, it, it's an SW900 locomotive with 10 hopper cars and a shoving platform. And we operate on about five and a half miles of track out of the Wilton Quarry. Mm-hmm. And the only customer we serve at the moment is Granite State Concrete. So we'll go up to the Wilton Quarry, we load up with a thousand tons of stone, bring it down to the concrete plant and dump it off. We generally mm-hmm. do between one to three trips a day, depending as to how efficiently everything runs and what the demand for concrete is at the day. Yeah, it's become kind of an institution there in that part of the state. Uh, obviously, part of the former Boston and Maine's Hillsborough branch, originally the, the Keene branch. Um, and we did do a video, a speeder ride, I think back in June, if, if you're interested in seeing what the line looks like, there is a video on YouTube. Um, and we actually do traverse part of the route that Milford Bennington operates on. So uh, kind of a cool visual there. But uh, talking about the 1228 specifically, um, there may be some people out there that are not familiar with that specific engine. So basically what we're talking about here is an EMD SW9 model uh, switcher locomotive and cab switcher. And the SW9, for those that aren't aware, were manufactured between November 1950 and December 1953. So uh, we're looking at first generation diesel power here. Uh, during the transition era from steam to diesel power. Uh, And the Boston Mains order, specifically the second order of uh, SW9s, which this was part of, uh, was ordered around May 1953. And I believe the order number was uh, E4208. Uh, So these were ordered with uh, EMD 567B blocks, a V12 two-stroke diesel engine, uh, generating about 1,200 horsepower solid. So they were pretty interesting diesels and they were pretty ubiquitous with the Boston and Maine. Uh, they had a pretty good number of them and they would be used all over the system. Um, but the 1228 is pretty interesting in that it seems to have only stuck around certain places, whereas other diesels from that class, like the 1230, 1231, uh, could be seen anywhere from the Conway branch to um, you know the West End, whereas the 1228 really kind of stuck around the Boston area in its early life. Uh, it was seen in East Somerville, on the Watertown branch, places like West Concord, Fitchburg, Gardner, Ayer, Lowell, uh, showed up in Lawrence, I think, out on the Newburyport branch. And then towards the bankruptcy, it did start to move around a little bit further than that. We've got shots of it in Manchester, New Hampshire. And then towards the 1980s, it kind of moved around as a lot of diesels did. Uh, We've got photos of it out in Deerfield, East Deerfield Yard. And then when the Guilford era came around, it was pretty much exclusively up in Maine. 
uh, Waterville and South Portland uh, to be specific. Um, so it did bounce around a lot, but it's an engine that uh, out of all the SW9s, um, the 1228 specifically, probably one of the lesser photographed, lesser known examples that we have right now anyway. Now, I know that this has been something that's been highlighted a little bit, kind of lining along with the history of the engine. Uh, a lot of the paint is still visible on the engine. And as a matter of fact, the paint dating back to presumably the delivery. And I know, Zach, you've noticed some of that on the number boards, literally the history of the engine in the paint that's still on there. Yeah. So when they painted these locomotives, they did them fairly quickly. It was just a scuff and buff, um, lay out another coat. I've counted five or six coats of paint and uh, stripping the number boards. And another thing I'll add is this is one of the um, second gen SW9s mm -hmm. that were built with cab signals. So that's why it has those big goofy number boards up front. It's just part of what they did. And that makes sense as to why it was stationed more towards the Boston area where um, cab signals were required. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they did have them on the Fitchburg, Fitchburg line there, which is probably why it, it tended to stay around there. Came in the maroon and gold with silver trucks, kind of the classic ubiquitous Boston main scheme. And it was blue dipped. Um, when it was blue dipped, it had all white handrails, which was interesting. Uh, usually they only had uh, the white at the very ends of the handrails. It had uh, white sills on it as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, we know that during the early 1970s, probably 74, 75, it was in a collision where um, the entire cab had to be rebuilt. Yep. So other than the front fascia of the cab where the windows are, everything behind that has been rebuilt. And uh, there are pictures of it with the hood and the engine block removed. So it's it's led quite the life where it got a pretty serious overhaul at one point. Yeah, that was something that was completely unknown uh, to us until we were scanning a collection of slides in the Society archives that showed the engine at Boston Engine Terminal with its cab crushed, and then a series of shots at Bill Ricca shops of the engine being overhauled. Um, so we do know that it did have some sort of accident at some point. If anybody out there, uh, you know, in the, in the society is aware of what happened to the engine, uh, we'd love to know because at this point in time, uh, we're not sure, but we do know. And I believe, Ruben, you've noticed that a lot of the cab uh, for that reason is pretty, pretty updated. Yeah, I think it was uh, around the time when I started ripping out the inner walls of the cab and I found how in such good condition the metal was, that's when I started trying to figure out what the heck happened to it. Because my boss had mentioned to me at one point he had heard that it was in a collision, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until you scanned those slides and you and I looked at them uh, when we found out how bad the collision was and how far they went to strip the thing down and rebuild. Thankfully, because of that, it's in far better shape than it could otherwise have been at this stage. And that may be the reason why the engine survived is because, you know, when you look at the late 70s, uh, a lot of the B&M switchers um, were, you know, put out of service and moved to Bill Ricca. Um, but the yeah. fact that this engine had considerable work done to it that late in the game uh, may have been one of the reasons why it made it into the Guilford era and then beyond. But then, of course, the engine did make it into the Guilford era. It was renumbered 1423 Springfield Terminal, 1423, uh, which is mostly the paint that it's still in at this point in time, of course, in a faded and uh, <laughs> faded status. But uh, if you, if you see pictures of the engine, that's, that's pretty much significantly the paint that it's still wearing for the most part. Give you a little background on the engine there. It's an interesting example of an engine, a Boston main engine that's still here. Uh, the only example of an, a Boston main SW in New Hampshire. Um, and really one of the few examples of a Boston main EMD SW in New England, as most of them were 
uh, sold to leasing companies or scrap companies and uh, did not survive. So uh, very neat that that one is still kicking around with us. So that kind of brings us into uh, you know, the Milford Bennington's portion of the story and was stored for, for many years in a, in a multitude of different places on, on your system. Yes, indeed it was. I think the first location I ever saw it was out there by Hendrix, yep. uh, old siding not far below suburban propane. And then when they removed that siding, it was shot up to Wilton just across from the station. And then from there, it went to Greenfield. Yeah, it was up at Greenfield there by the uh, the former freight house uh, for quite a while with a with a caboose, which is also no longer on the system. Yeah, location up in Greenfield is not a good spot to be using power tools. The neighbors are getting quite irate with me being there. Mm-hmm. You know, it was railroad property. Yeah, and the place that it's now is certainly uh, not a place where you have to worry about that. So uh, it's definitely good to have it in a better spot. A lot of people have asked this question. Um, you know, the engine is being a source of curiosity for a lot of people and having had it sit for a long time, a lot of people have, have wondered, did it ever run on the Milford Bennington? And if it did, what were kind of some of the specifics of that operation? Uh, and it has come to light that it did indeed run at least once for the Milford Bennington. Is that right? Yes, it, it did run at least once. And that's when it was discovered the issue with it, which is why it was sidelined. Yeah. I believe, and it'd be better to get this information from my boss, uh, that it assisted early on with one of the quinquery trains on bringing the hopper cars up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as I think on the Milford Bennington group, I did post a picture a while back of 901 and 1228 lashed together, mm-hmm. um, shoving one of those trains up the hill. So there was actually probably the most recent doubleheader you're going to see of Milford Bennington for a while. Yeah. Um, so yes, it, it was used uh, at least once, if not a handful of times before it was parked because okay. of a water leak somewhere inside the engine block. Mm-hmm. Quinn trains, was, were those the trains in conjunction with the Downeaster project? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that was that was back in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, when they were running those trains up to Quinn Quarry for, for ballast for the Downeaster restoration. Um, so I guess that kind of brings us into the engine itself. Uh, we just mentioned some of the mechanical a- uh, aspects of the engine. You know, if you could tell us a little bit about the mechanical status of the locomotive, you know, what are the, some of the things that need to be addressed on it, uh, some of the issues that it's having? You know, not not anything monumental, but certainly for an engine that's been out of service for that long. There are many issues that can pop up when you let it sit around for near 20 years. The main issue that had the thing sit, uh, like I had described before, was a water leak somewhere in the engine block, which we finally identified last mm-hmm. year. One of the typical problems with those type of B blocks is the water manifold system and how it's connected into the base of the liners. If you open up the airbox cover of the C block, you'll see a pipe with jumpers coming off of it, and the jumpers line right up into the liners. And that was the replacement for the B blocks where you would actually set it down, and there were these two rings at the base of uh, the liners mm-hmm. that allowed the water manifold to sort of open up into this orifice with the water manifold, and those rings would rot out over time. Okay. And that would cause water to come out into both the airbox and potentially down into the oil. Um, so that, that, was, that was something that was you know, addressed sometime in the 50s uh, when they started changing over the C block. And that, that's where there's, you'll have some locomotives with BC upgrades. So they'll have upgraded that water manifold system to prevent that, but still keep a B block. Okay. Um, so that's one of the, the big issues right up front. And unfortunately, it's not a terribly expensive thing to fix, but it's a very labor-intensive thing to fix. Where you got to pull all the power packs and redo those gaskets at the base of them. Uh, so that, that's the first thing that really needs to happen before trying to do a live test. 
on the engine block. Uh, there are a number of injectors that have seized up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've handed one of those off to Zach to let him dig his fingers into it and see what he can come up with. Um, as far as the engine block goes, it, you know, bearings seem to look all right. There's very little in the way of rust inside the engine block. So those two are the crucial components before we're ready to do a live test. Right. As far as other components in the locomotive, the air compressor completely seized up on me. I actually had to tear that thing apart before I could get the engine to roll over last year where I was dancing up and down on the lining bar for a couple of days before I finally turned. <laughs> um, so it, that's going to need a top deck replacement kit yeah. minimum for the air compressor to function again. And although the wheels are in good shape, the bearings unfortunately have suffered. I know when I went up there to look at the locomotive initially, some of the journal boxes were left wide open mm-hmm. and the elements had gotten in there, uh, started pitting the axle ends. And of course, you know, you know, when you get to that kind of a point, there are some remedies for that, which I'm, I'm trying to research thanks to help from people like uh, the Clarks and some of my mentors from Conway Scenic trying to assist in finding ways to you know, get the bearings to at least play ball, which is how we get it down there. But uh, unfortunately, for a long-term use, it's going to be a cheese grater right over the bearings right. uh, with all those pitted holes. So that, that's definitely something that's going to need to be dealt with at some point. So mm-hmm. as far as mechanical things, those are, those are the major components that need help. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely it's good to hear that it's got, you know, some things about it, some good bones there. So it's not going to be, you know, insurmountable task. It's just, you know, piece by piece working on it and figuring, addressing the issues that need to be corrected. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And admittedly, there were some parts that were removed from it and donated to 901, which will have to be replaced. Yep. The traction motor that's missing. Uh, there were some components of the main generator that needed to be used elsewhere. And then you know, outside of mechanical, you've also got the pneumatic system and the electrical system, uh, both of which are going to need some extensive repair. The electrical system, the entire electrical cabinet, I had it pretty much gut, unfortunately, because once the neighbors smashed out the windows and left the doors open, it didn't really fare too well. Right. So that, that's probably going to take a lot of time right there and patience, not only rebuilding that system, but also doing all the tests um, mm-hmm. to get it to work again. Yeah. Yeah, it's good that the engine has been stabilized. I believe a lot of the a lot of the windows have been replaced. That was an issue. I think that was up there in Greenfield. A lot of the windows had been smashed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got plexiglass windows in right now because it was easy to buy it at Home Depot and cut them to size and throw them in temporarily. Yeah. Uh, to at least protect the inside of the cab. Right. So it's stable, which is which is the most important thing, and it's not going anywhere. Um, you know, which is also a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about the project that's kind of come to light is that, um, you know, being that this is, you know, a project that's being undertaken by the Milford Bennington and the employees of the Milford Bennington, there's really no issue with volunteers getting involved, which is something that has been done. Uh, some of the smaller pieces have been chopped out to certain individuals who are working on them, uh, the number board brackets, headlight casings, uh, new number boards. These are all things that are being uh, worked on by people that are interested in helping out with the project, people with mechanical savvy and resources available who can who can lend a hand, um, not only to help the, the railroad, the Milford Bennington, uh, but also to see a piece of B&M history uh, operate in the capacity again, which is very nice. Zach, you've been doing some of that. I believe you've been working on uh, not only the headlight casings, but the, the number board brackets, those classic Boston and Maine uh, nose-mounted brackets. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've done with that uh, some of the things that you've noticed working on those pieces and uh, some of the work that you have to still do on those. So the uh, 
headlight buckets themselves, uh, took them apart. Uh, they cleaned up very nice, uh, put them in the sandblaster at my work. I work in a metal fabrication shop, so I have access to all kinds of material and whatnot and uh, savvy knowledge. I'd like to say I was born with a screwdriver in both hands. So I'm nothing I'm not foreign to. And um, the number boards are interesting because I, as I dove into them, I determined that the lids on them are actually from a different set of number boards because of the way the uh, brackets are welded on. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting that those have been piecemealed together. Those should be going out to get sandblasted next week uh, at some point. There is a lot of corrosion inside them, so we'll see what we have left to work with. And uh, if it's not enough, the option is on the table where I can build new ones at work to those spec, possibly out of aluminum so we don't run into this corrosion issue again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you've got you've got the resources to do that. The measurements can be made and everything, which is good. Yep. But the nice thing about having volunteers work on these smaller pieces is that you know, while the bigger pieces need to be addressed and shopped out, and new pieces need to be found. Uh, you can have progress made on the smaller pieces, uh, which is just as important. The smaller rungs of the ladder are just important in getting to the top. Um, you know, yep. and that, that allows for real progress on the engine uh, to be worked on. So certainly the volunteer aspect is something that uh, is really nice to see. Uh, and especially a younger generation, I believe everybody involved with this is of a younger generation at this point. If, if I can add here too, um, mm -hmm. especially for this particular project, um, it's not only, you know, it's exceedingly helpful to have volunteers involved because uh, unfortunately, Milford Bennington Railroad lacks a proper maintenance facility. Right. Um, so having people like Zach, where he's got access to things like a metal fabrication company with everything that's necessary in the shop to be able to do this kind of work really helps this project going forward. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, playing out in a rock quarry trying to blast things off. Right. So it, it does actually serve a, a huge purpose. Um, to be able to have the diverse set of individuals to be able to join this project. Yeah, and keep some of those elements out of the elements. Keep you know, the number of board brackets, the headlights, all these things uh, that would normally be out in, out in the weather, keep them in a place like a shop where they can be worked on and, and kept out of the elements is, is certainly a, a good thing to be able to do. Definitely, definitely making a good situation out of it with the resources at hand, um, you know, compared to some other places, like you said, with, with workshops and that sort of thing. Uh, there's no reason this can't be done uh, in a similar manner, just pieced out, aided by different volunteers. So certainly nice to see that. I think the interesting thing that we've talked about this project is that, you know, it's not a restoration for a heritage museum or a tourist railroad. Uh, this, this will be a functional restoration in which the engine is going to be used uh, in freight service, which is pretty unique to this project. I believe uh, this is, to my knowledge, the only project I can think of right now where a Boston and Maine locomotive is being restored for freight service. And not only that, but it'll be, to my knowledge, the only former Boston and Maine diesel locomotive in regular freight service on the former Boston and Maine system. I mean, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's quite a goal to work too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it is kind of just an anecdotal thing because it just happens to be, you know, on a short line in, in New Hampshire on the BM system. Uh, one of the things we've talked about is that, you know, as opposed to other restorations, this is not necessarily going to be a, like a rivet counter historical restoration. No. Uh, the, the engine will look on the outside pretty much as it did when it worked for the Boston Maine. But uh, obviously the nature of the beast is that in the past 70 years, uh, better technology has come out. These engines themselves, as you, as you said, were shopped around multiple times. So the ones that are still around 
are not original anyway. So a lot of the components on the inside are going to have to be updated and modernized. Uh, if you want, uh, one thing I can do is when I realize that individuals like Neil Rousseau and Zach, uh, Steve Conway, and a, a bunch of others began approaching me and wanted to join in on this project, then I got the go-ahead from my boss to allow volunteers, whom I knew, uh, to join in. I, I decided to put together uh, a bit of a an outline on the restoration project, and at the top of it, I did kind of have a, a short bit on the vision for it. Why? Yeah. Kind of read that. Please do. So... That essentially stated, it should be noted that the main intent of 1228's restoration is to get her working again in a new era of its life, not to restore to authentic specs from its past life on the Boston Maine. This means things like cab interior layout and components, as well as external car body decor, like paint scheme, may be changed and not adhere to original specs. Financial decisions will more likely favor modern improvements over rivet counting. Right. That was kind of the, the initial vision when we realized that this was going to be a project and it's not just a dream. Yeah, I think that's to be expected, you know, being in the fact that it's it's working for a, a for-profit railroad. It's not, you know, at a non-profit museum. Um, but in a way that's that's exciting too, because here you have a Boston Maine engine that you know may not necessarily be painted up Boston Maine. It may not look or act exactly the way it did for the Boston Maine, but it's a new life for a piece of Boston Maine history. And in that matter, it will be progressed into the future um, and still carry on that legacy, uh, which is very cool. Um, and functional too. It, it'll keep it around if it's functional. It won't necessarily be doing much good if it's, you know, an outdated engine in a modern capacity, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was kind of one of the reasons why we decided to go with the idea of just tearing out the entire electrical system and finding the schematics, mm -hmm. modern components to be able to put in her so that it would be more competitive in a modern world rather than, you know, 1950s engine trying to live in the 21st century. <laughs> right, exactly. Especially in that capacity. It's not hauling four passenger coaches on a tourist line. You know, it'll be working hard <laughs> up the hill exactly. there in Wilton. So and also when something goes wrong, you want to be able to find a replacement component, not digging around on eBay and trying to find exactly. It. Now that kind of leads me into another question here. How has it been, you know, working with other groups, working with companies, uh, parts manufacturers? How has it been uh, you know, trying to locate replacement parts, modern parts? Um, trying to fit that all into this vision that you have for the engine. When I finally began contacting different companies that I was already working with to get components for uh, the Milford Bennington 901, as well as when I was working at Conway Scenic, uh, I began kind of digging around to see who potentially had components for a 567B. Now, nine times out of 10, you call somebody up and they start laughing at the other end. Oh, you poor sap, you have to deal with one of those now? Yeah. Um, and they all warn that it's, it is becoming increasingly difficult to find those kind of components, but they are still out there. So it's, it does require a little bit more digging, but luckily there are still enough of them out there that there's a supply and you do have some options to go about. But mm -hmm. on, on top of that, even so, since many of these locomotives were updated to BC specs, uh, there are packages to be able to um, upgrade older components to somewhat modern ones. And, and even some of the older uh, manuals for this, uh, you can get digital versions and in those will have part numbers that are outdated and the new one that has replaced it, which has been exceedingly helpful. Mm -hmm. sure. um, so because this was something that most railroads, when they had these locomotives still in service, needed to do as time went on, when they buy a locomotive, they want it to last as long as they can. Right. Uh, and many of these would be you know, put through uh, entire rebuilds, and these rebuilds would 
tend to facilitate these newer components going into older power. And that information was luckily documented, which is helping. Yeah. So as far as electrical components, I feel like that was probably the hardest one, trying to find anybody that even recognized some of the EMD numbers that was shooting at them right. for things like the starting contactors or the, the power contactors or uh, some of the resistors. So that, again, was kind of one of the reasons why I just started. And, and, and plus, we don't even have a schematic for 1228, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the reasons why I started just looking around and saying, okay, who's got an SW1200 schematic? Let's just deal with that. Right. Got to rip it all apart anyway. So we might as well deal with something with modern components in it. And luckily, there was a company, um, was it uh, Motive Power Resources, that was able to provide me with a accurate schematic for an SW1200 that they recently completely rebuilt. And therefore, they have all the components necessary to make it work. And it's so simple. I mean, you could fit it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And it's, it's nothing terribly complicated. You don't have a transition system. You don't have the block signal system in there. It's just everything necessary just to make the wheels turn. Right. And honestly, at this point, that's, that's all we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just get it, just get it, you know, into a place where it'll be useful and where it will be able to, you'll be able to work on that without any issues. I mean, the more obstacles that you run into, the more difficult it's going to be. <laughs> you know, having the best documents, having the best schematics and everything is really going to help. So that's one thing that I remember when the project first kind of came out, um, we did look around in the society archives for anything, uh, anything at all on the SW9s. And we found that we have more ALCO than we do EMD, which is, <laughs> which is, which is probably a good thing for some groups um, because wow. you know, obviously the EMDs are still more prevalent and uh, more available and the parts are more available. Um, but that just kind of interested me is that we had more ALCO than we did EMD. So. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, and I think you had mentioned that there's probably still some EMD documentation uh, that's on BNM property that just hasn't been discovered yet. Probably. Being in the fact that those were in service later and longer than the ALCOs, I would think that the stuff that was donated to, to us was probably the stuff they didn't really need anymore. Whereas, oh, you know, it's 1981, Alan Dustin comes to the BNM Society. Hey, do you want these 1950 ALCO documents? But well, we still need the EMD because we're still using the EMDs. You know, yeah. so that that's just that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. And I know uh, Zach <laughs> has also had some experience on trying to find components too. Yeah, if you want to talk about that a little bit, uh, you know, reaching out to some of these groups, what if you found Zach? Um, you know, because I think that's something that a lot of people don't consider when it comes to diesel locomotives and parts is that there's a lot of these companies out there that that offer these things. Um, it's just a matter of tracking them down and finding them. Yeah, so I come from a line of um, restoring older cars. So my first hunch is to go on the internet and, you know, look up uh, EMD SW9 headlight bulbs. Well, you to go and do that with a locomotive in real scale and you're met with model train parts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then you have to go outsource to these companies like uh, Western Rail or Larry's Truck and Electric and whatnot. And you have to play the uh, phone tag game of sourcing part numbers where there aren't any and, you know, trying to figure out what fits where. And uh, it's really, it's a crapshoot of parts. It's nothing like restoring a car. Right. But uh, half the fun is the hunt and looking for the parts and seeing what works and mm -hmm. what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be somewhat similar to the, you know, the old, the antique car business, because I mean, when you think about it, you know, if you want to go to Ford and get a part for a car, I mean, they only stock it so far back. And then you have to start looking into community. You got to look at the names. 
got to reach out to you know interest groups and hobby groups and you know people that are still paying attention to these antique pieces of machinery, whether it's an SW9 or a, you know, a Camaro or a charger or something like that, you know, it's still, there is a similar way of reaching out in a community aspect and just finding the the source is really the important part. Absolutely. Yep. And I think one thing that both Zach and I have experienced is uh, there's no one location that you can go to and it has everything you need. It's, very much dancing around. It's like, okay, well, these companies here seem to be willing to help us on the electrical side. These people we got to go to as far as engine components and these people for frame parts and whatnot. So you are dancing around and having to build quite a uh, list of you know companies to keep track of as to where you're going to be sourcing your parts from. Yes, I will say that both Reuven and I are uh, fairly well-versed in finding a uh, needle in a haystack, per se, when it comes to these parts. <laughs> Yeah, which is good though, because that helps the community. I mean, now you've got names and numbers and contacts and absolutely. Uh, you know, just just like the way that you got into the Milford Bennington to begin with, Ruben. I mean, it's all about the connections in, in this hobby, whether you're, you know, writing a book or whether you're, you know, a modeler or whether you're restoring a, a piece of, you know, Boston and Maine rolling stock to a modern setting. Um, it's really, it really comes down to knowing the right people and, and getting the, the right people involved. Uh, Neil, you've, you've done a little bit with volunteering as well. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about how you've gotten involved and what you've been able to, uh, to accomplish and, and just kind of help out with the group so far. Uh, so far, I've been up a couple of days, helped Reuben with uh, a lot of the paint work, mm-hmm. paint and um, starting to prime it and put the next coat of paint on. Yeah. Um, that's about it so far, but we keep in touch a lot every now and then and what's going on with it. Yeah. And you're down in that area too. So, you know, you're, you're on call, I'm sure, and, and available if, if things need to be done, um, yep. you know, quick and easy, which is kind of another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, you know, time and time again, I find one of the absolute best things about the community is that it's a community. Uh, there's jacks of all trades with various levels of experience, uh, tools at their disposal. Everybody that you know has something else they can offer, um, you know, parts, paint, resources, knowledge, maybe just sitting down and listening to you talk about your project. How can the Boston and Maine and the railroad community at large uh, get involved with this project? And, you know, in, in various ways, what are some ways that they could get involved and how could they reach out to you guys if they had something that they think could, could aid the project? Some of the disadvantages with the project right now, which is definitely where we're looking for help, is we have no electrical power at the location that we're working at. Um, and yeah, at the moment, we can continue to pick away at stuff and bring things home as needed, but a, a source of power is definitely going to be a necessary thing, whether it's a portable generator. I, I, I've also been attempting to work with the, the Quins there, and they, they've been able to help us with some things on providing, but I'm not quite sure how far that's going to go. Continuing to find other individuals with their experience in, in certain areas. You know, we, Zachary's definitely got his metalworking background. I've got my electrical backgrounds, but there's loads of general labor that's going to need to be done on this locomotive to you know, get things to to work. Mm-hmm. But like so, so over the winter, I know we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing in the society uh, is keeping in touch with this project. Um, you know, we'd like to do a newsletter piece about it. So you'll probably, if you're a member um, of the society, you'll you'll certainly be noticing piece on the, the story specifically, we'll have uh, it in writing and we'll have some pictures of the project and some some st- some steps and also some contact information too for people to get involved. And if you're not a member of the society and you want to receive the newsletter, um, by all means, um, head over to the website and check on how to do that. 
we're going to be doing that. We'd like to do a video as well. We are thinking about maybe doing uh, Minuteman Tales featuring the locomotive, the history of the locomotive, and um, talking a little bit about this project specifically. Uh, so there are going to be ways that we'll be continuing on with the story. Um, but in the meantime, if you're interested in uh, following it, uh, you can head over to that uh, Springfield Terminal 1423 page um, and you know, reach out there. I've mentioned to Rick briefly, obviously with a big project like this, Reuven and I right now are currently the only ones that are funding it as much as we hate to ask for money. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it'd be ideal if we were to come up potentially with merchandise. Like I was, I was able to build some really nice um, 1228 number boards and I got asked um, by several people, Hey, would you mind building me one? And I'm all for it. If you want a 1228 number board, let me know. I'd be more than happy to build you one. All the proceeds would be going to this project. Mm -hmm. uh, the sooner we can get funding in any way, shape, or form, the better off that we are because uh, locomotive parts are certainly not cheap. Right. Right. And the nice thing about this project is that it's not anywhere that's in danger of being pulled out from under it. It's not at a government institution where you have to worry about writing a report to Washington every time you change a rivet. Exactly. You know? This is this is strictly um, a grassroots effort per se, you know, yeah. where we don't have to worry about legislation and all that other kind of stuff and the project lingering while um, people argue over what's being done next, you know, right. as long as we can get someone doing this, someone doing that, uh, join all the pieces together like a puzzle should go without a hitch. Yeah. I mean, the engine's safe, it's stable. You know, any funds are going to go directly to the engine being worked on in a timely fashion. And yep. of course, with the volunteer work, you'll be able to see active progress because there's people working on this when they're available. They don't have to worry for, wait for board approval to work on a part, you know, it'll be done and it'll be moving forward. And soon enough, hopefully um, we'll have, you know, a Boston main engine in a modern capacity, which is just going to be able to keep that history alive, but also contribute to its own history. And one of the things I think, uh, which is going to be great is when we get back to train shows, um, it'll be possible for tables there. It'll be possible for uh, fundraising there. Um, one of the things, you know, merchandise, merchandise sales on a Facebook page or a temporary website, uh, like you said, replica number boards, um, possibly other ways of merchandising as well. Um, the nice thing about that is you can set up donation features. So people, if they're interested in donating some money or some time or some materials, I'm sure tools and that sort of thing are just as acceptable for the project. They'll be labor, to, labor exactly. as well. Labor is greatly appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> and then for these, and then for these, um, the great thing about these electronic things like Facebook or a website is that you can set up events. So when the group has a work session in the spring, send out an announcement, anybody that's interested in showing up to help scrape paint or, you know, move something into the engine or anything like that can come up and help. If you're interested in helping out with the project, you know, Reuven is on Facebook. Uh, Zach is on Facebook. They've got the 1423 page. Uh, so you can certainly reach out to them directly and uh, get involved in any way that they can. And keep an eye out as well through the society. We'll be keeping the project alive and updated. Uh, there should be links and that sort of thing that you can go and, and keep involved. Um, but it's great. And it's wonderful to see that there's this kind of dedication and devotion uh, to a project like this, but also in a completely unique fashion. Like I said, I can't think of anything else like this that's happening right now. Well, we did a lot of good stuff here today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed being here. Certainly enjoyed having some questions answered. And I hope you guys were able to learn a little bit more about the 1228. Thank you much. Well, that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And as always, 
If you're interested in learning more about the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society or joining us, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Thank you.